welcome to episode 14 of Thinking in the Midst, a podcast about philosophy and action in education. With Derek Gottlieb, I'm Kara Furman. In this episode, we talked about fascism and where both fascist and anti-fascist tendencies live in schools. Our guests offered a nuanced articulation of what the word fascist means and why thinking about it matters when we think about education. Moving adeptly between the conceptual and the practical, they offer diverse and encompassing suggestions for readings, concrete ways of engaging students in anti-fascist interruptions, and a call for community spaces of joy. Exciting for me, they put early childhood education at the forefront of this work. As with a number of our speakers, they spoke to the beauty and need for community spaces of study, talk, and inquiry. With that, we invite you to come think with all of us in this study space. Enjoy. Welcome. We are so excited to have both of you on the show and to learn more about your work and your upcoming work on fascism and how that fits in with education. Silas, would you be able to start us off by introducing yourself? Yes. Um, my name is Silas Kreba. I'm a doctoral student in educational studies at the University of British Columbia, uh, which is on the unceded territories of the Musqueam people. I, um, my educational work is in the downtown east side of Vancouver. I'm a religious educator there and have been for the last 10 years. And uh, my doctoral work is looking at intellectual violence that occurs between uh, student and teacher, specifically the experience of the student in those interactions where there's unintentional harm. Thank you so much. That sounds really fascinating. Tyson? Um, hi, everybody. So I'm Tyson Lewis, and I'm a professor of art education at the University of North Texas in the art education department. And I teach a variety of classes on critical theory, educational philosophy, uh, post-humanism, phenomenological research methods, um, and then I publish on a wide variety of topics as well. My One of my most recent books is uh, on Volta Benjamin, and it's titled <clears throat> Volta Benjamin, uh, Ant Benjamin's Anti-Fascist Education from, radio, from Riddles to Radio. And uh, uh, I think that that will be, you know, something that I'm going to touch on multiple times throughout our discussion during the next hour. Um, also, I have another book out co-authored with Peter Hyland titled Studious Drift, Protocols and Movements for a Post-Digital Education. And uh, as a sort of offshoot project of that, Peter and I have also recently published an article on, on this concept of studious drift and how it connects to a sort of anti-fascist education as well. So anti-fascist education is a sort of overarching theme of some of my most recent work. Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, could you uh, tell us sort of the story of how you came to be interested in anti-fascist education or how fascism sort of arose to your consciousness as a, as a locus of study around this time? Tyson, I think you should take this one first. Okay. So um, there are a couple, a couple things that I'd like to highlight. First off, I began writing this book on on Benjamin uh, several years ago. This was right sort of at the beginning of, well, maybe it was right before Trump's presidency. And the book was really not focused on anti-fascism at all. I sort of mentioned it, but it was not a central theme of the book. I was more or less just interested in clarifying uh, educational themes throughout throughout Benjamin's writings. But then something happened to me. I um, uh, so I published an article on whiteness, critical whiteness studies for art education, and this was picked up by um, sort of fake news, ultra right wing um, uh, news outlets online, and the thing went viral. And then I started uh, being harassed by various um, neo-Nazi fascist groups and radical extremists via email. Um, and this went on for about a year. And I think that this, this, uh, uh, this, this experience, um, made me acutely aware of the rise of fascist rhetoric, um, especially against, um, 
anyone touting liberal or leftist ideas in the academy. <clears throat> and since then, I've become part of a network of many other scholars who have uh, suffered uh, similar attacks or have been um, uh, victims of like ongoing trolling campaigns. And so, um, yeah, so from this, I realized like this isn't just right-wing extremism. There is something else going on here and it maps on to uh, if it's not directly fascist, then it's neo-fascist or proto-fascist tendencies emerging in our culture. So, so, <clears throat> so I think that that that's my personal background. And then, um, uh, basically, this made me this this prompted me to rewrite the book that I was writing on Benjamin, and I literally did an, a, com a complete rewrite of the book. And fascism and the problematic of fascism became central to my argument to my analysis. Um, more recently. Um, I think that these sort of tightening connections between fascist groups and mainstream political parties in places like Hungary and the United States, and we can think here of uh, Trump's recent dog whistles to the far right at his uh, at, at his speech in, in Waco, Texas, on the 30th anniversary of the Branch Davidian incident, uh, which. I mean, the Branch Davidian, what happened there, it remains a, a, a touchstone event for far-right fascist groups in the United States. And so the fact that Trump was directly citing that um, uh, represents this sort of like this, this tightening connection between, uh, you know, what would otherwise be very marginal uh, 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 extremist groups and mainstream politics. So I think that, that that is increasingly worrying. And I also think... That during the pandemic, uh, the pandemic, <clears throat> there was uh, there's evidence that there were increasing uh, attempts to recruit young white men into fascist groups through the internet, in particular through things like Telegram and so on. And so I, I think that there are a bunch of um, contemporary events that prompted me to be interested in putting together a special issue on the topic of anti-fascist education. These were in the back of my mind when um, Silas and I started talking about uh, putting together a special issue, and uh, we're working. On, we're currently working on that right now, and it will be for the journal, the Review of Education, Pedagogy, and Cultural Studies, probably coming out sometimes next 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 year. So, I guess my interest in anti-fascism really comes out of a personal experience, but also, you know, all of these social, political, and economic conditions uh, of the present moment. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Silas, can you tell us a little bit about how you, uh, how your work comes to intersect with uh, Tyson's experience and the collaboration that you've got going on? Yeah. So as I said, my work is in, uh, in the downtown east side of Vancouver. And uh, the downtown east side of Vancouver is uh, notoriously known as the poorest neighborhood in Canada. And so I work with people who have experienced all kinds of violence, both from the state and interpersonal violence. Uh, and then as we entered the pandemic, um, there was always simmering conspiracy theories with the people I worked with. Um, but this just blew up. And so I've been thinking for the last couple of years about how, how to educate in this new um, milieu of cultural distrust and um, and that alongside with an increased um, level of violence from the state. So in, in, in the city here just this past month, uh, there's been street sweeps. So moving people's tents off the streets with force, with the police enforcing that um, under the guise of public safety for fire codes. And so there's this mix of um, conspiracy theory happening within the community, and then there's um, levels of violence. And last summer, I was working um, on in a seminar on Paulo Freire, and in an introduction, he wrote for uh, the theologian James Cohn's um, Liberation Theology text. He has a part where he's working um, on the politics of life and death. And as I was reading this and rereading this. Um, Carl Schmitt came to mind, uh, political theology. Carl Schmitt was a Nazi um, and is famous for um, defining the sovereign, the state, which he moves from the sovereign to the state, 
as the one who decides the exception or the one who can enact violence without um, naming it as violence as such. And so I was working with Freire and thinking about Schmidt and these resonances, and that pushed my work towards um, reading Paulo Freire as an anti-fascist thinker, thinking, um, thinking about those dynamics of community, the state, and violence, and that pushed my work towards an anti-fascist uh, ends, an anti-fascist aim. Thank you. That's really fascinating. Um, and I'm just so intrigued by the juxtaposition you have there of reading these two thinkers alongside each other and and coming to think about Freire in that light. I'm going to move us forward to ask more about what you found out as you've been studying fascism. But before I do, I want to first have you say what fascism is is. And I want to say that in two contexts, one, just to offer a definition. And two, Silas, you've given us an example of, you know, an actual sort of an actual fascist, a Nazi thinker, right? Um, Nazism is usually associated with fascism. Many people, I think we're extending the definition beyond people who are Nazis, um, or who have are historically associated with the party. Um, and I have a colleague who, when I said we were doing this today, said there's a lot of critique about the use of the word fascism right now, that it's become overused and used lightly, and then that makes it really hard for us to actually use it when we need to use it. So I'd like you guys to say what it is and why do we need to use that term um, right now, and then what have you been finding? So. Yes, fascism is notoriously hard to define in some respects and very simple in others. Uh, as I was working and thinking about Paulo Freire as an anti-fascist, I reached to um, Umberto Eco and Jason Stanley. Both of them create lists of traits of fascism, and they argue that um, fascism can't be defined by a singular aspect. And I I don't think it's helpful to reduce fascism just to Nazism or just to the German experience in the mid 20th century. Um, what Echo and Stanley enable me to do is to say that when there's a constellation of traits happening in the political sphere, that we can think about that um, as congealing a fascism. And so it's going to look different, whether it's in Hungary, whether it's in Brazil, whether it's in the United States, but we can see similarities across all of these differences. And so just to name a few of these traits, there's um, traits like a cult of tradition um, or appeals to xenophobia or machismo and masculinity being highlighted or, uh, or plots where um, there's an enemy that needs to be eradicated and that enemy is both um, very strong yet able to be defeated. And so these, these type of things get built up in a propaganda. Um, and Jason Stanley really uses the language of a politics of us and them. And when the propaganda spins into that politics of us and them, um, we're very close to violence, very close to that violent um, expression of fascism. So that's how I'm thinking about the term. And I think it's important, important to use the term fascism uh, because we could look at any one of these traits, and I think there's been good work both in education and beyond on traits of xenophobia or racism or uh, the patriarchy. But when we treat them all separately, sometimes we miss that there's a, there's a political zeitgeist that be, can uh, build and have its own kind of agency that spins out in uh, kind of uncontrolled ways and often violent ways. Thank you. That's really a fantastic definition. Um, Tyson, do you want to add into that? Yeah, sure. Um, so, as Silas said, there are many different ways to define fascism, and sadly, it often just becomes a catchphrase for anything you don't like or dis or anything you disagree with. Like that's just fascist, right? And I think that both Silas and I want to encourage 
um, educators to adopt a more precise definition of fascism. Um, and uh, I think, you know, the way I like to think of it is that there's probably three possible ways of, of addressing the, the issue of fascism. One is through a purely um, historical lens, looking at particular fascist regimes as a historical phenomenon. So analyzing, let's say, the Nazi state and its relationship to the economy um, and, you know, how it built itself and, and so on and so forth. So that that's one perspective. But I think that uh, what's more compelling is looking at fascism as either a social or social psychological tendency that that isn't reducible to any one particular historical manifestation, but rather um, can manifest in a, in a variety of different political and economic contexts. And so, for instance, uh, as Silas said, one of the ways of approaching fascism from this perspective is looking at it as a con as a set of it's kind of like a constellation of political beliefs, let's say, and you can almost have a Wittgensteinian sort of family resemblance argument here and say that, you know, none of these traits are essential or necessary um, or sufficient, but there's a kind of constellation of them that can shift around historically in different contexts, and they all are viable manifestations of, of some kind of fascism. And so, you know, this list can be expanded or retracted, but more often than not, it, it does include things like xenophobia, nationalism, investment in romantic symbols of the past, and so on and so forth. In my work, though, what I'm most interested in is turning to the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory and their approach to the fascist personality type. And so this would be a third way of thinking about fascism. And so uh, this would be looking at social psychological tendencies underlying the political beliefs that Silas outlined. Right? So these are, are more basic psychological tendencies that map onto political beliefs um, or that anim or prime us to take on certain kinds of fascist beliefs and potentially join fascist movements, uh, for instance. So uh, if you look at sort of the Frankfurt School, there's a couple key people here that I'm interested in, such as Eric Fromm. And uh, in the 1930s, he did a study on um, authority and the family in, in Germany. So this is uh, right, sort of <laughs> the timing of this is very interesting, right? This is in the, in the mid thirties that he was doing this. And so this is sort of right before, um, uh, Nazism. And he was sort of the first to define a certain set of characteristics, uh, that would come to, I guess, um, represent the fascist personality type. So these are things like, uh, pleasure in obedience, submissiveness, but also aggression, towards people who are defenseless and a kind of surrender of one's own personality to a strong figure. Um, and then these were later taken up by Theodore Adorno and colleagues in the 1950s in America when they um, researched and then wrote their famous book, The Authoritarian Personality. And really, they were trying to see whether or not fascism could arise in a liberal democratic society like the United States. And so uh, they created a, um, a, what they call the F scale or the fascist scale. And they did an empirical study uh, very similar to Frome. And they were trying to measure right, tendencies, fascist tendencies in the general popul population in the United States. And they came up with sort of a, their own constellation of, of um, possible uh, uh, sort of psychological trends. And that include things like conventionalism. So reliance on um, uh, convention or conforming to convention rather than relying on uh, critical self-reflection, right, to define what's right or wrong. Um, again, an emphasis on authoritarian submissiveness, um, a tendency to believe in superstition or conspiracies, a rejection of self-criticism, um, aggressiveness and hostility towards others, especially those who are oppressed, uh, projecti projecting onto others one's own fears, uh, oddly enough, an obsession with sexuality, which I think is very interesting to think about today, given the attacks on transgendered youth and so on and so forth in the United States. This is a longstanding component of the fascist personality. Um, and then finally, a sort of fascination, fasc fascination with power and toughness, this idea of the tough guy, some kind of hyper-masculinity. Um, 
And so, you know, this this scale has gone through many different iterations. People have critiqued it. People have revised it. Um, but I think what's important to to note here is that at least, you know, for Adorno in particular, this irrational set of psychological tendencies that we see in fascism um, is less about individuals and more it, it's more it's more like a manifestation or a psychological manifestation of social irrationality. Uh, this is the key key insight from the Frankfurt School and that so the irrationality of fascism is really a symptom of of social or economic patterns sort of internalized. Um, so these patterns, uh, these social patterns, you could think of as sort of introjected into the individual, into the individual psyche, um, resulting in a kind of authoritarian personality. Um, and in turn, then, the authoritarian personality then projects itself back out into society. So there's a kind of like a feedback loop here um, uh, uh, th that sort of leads to growing alienation, growing um, senses of fascism. Right, because uh, the fashion is internalized and then it's projected outwards, so that uh, it's sort of like a, um, a, a self-justifying cir circle, in other words. And so I'm interested in looking at that and how these, how education and early childhood education in particular can be a place for interrupting the hardening of these fascist personality types, uh, especially in young children. Because as we know, as I said at the onset, um, fascists uh, often recruit young, vulnerable, highly impressionable youth. So uh, this is a, a key intervention point in my mind. And it was also a key intervention point for people like Adorno. When he went back to Germany after the war, he engaged in, an, in a series of um, denazification education programs. And he also argued that early childhood education is a, a, a site, right, where um, – uh, uh, we can um, sort of stop these traits from taking hold. Thanks very much for that. Um, man, there was so much in there. Let me try to gather some together, speak it back to you a little bit, and then move on to the next question. First of all, I love the way that both of you talk about fascism as being irreducible to a specific set of traits. You know that I love the Wittgenstein uh, reference there, but I also was thinking, as Silas was speaking, of like the way that wildfires create their own weather at a certain sense and become this sort of like self-propagating take on a life of its own sort of thing. The the Wittgenstein I immediately thought of was the whatever paragraph 66 or 67 in the investigations when he says something about like uh, the strength of a family resemblance concept is not like reducible to one thread that runs through the whole thing, but the twisting together of many fibers. If the rope is fascist, it doesn't matter whether any of the individual threads qualifies as fascism. At the very end of that response, Tyson, you pushed us in the direction that we'd like to go in our next question, which is to ask the question of basically, what does all of this mean for education in particular? Uh, I'd like to throw that over to uh, Silas, that, that question about like, what are you, as you're thinking about education and uh, fascism as a problem, say a little bit more about the way that you uh, see education playing a role here, please. Yeah, I think I think education is uh, one aspect of fighting fascism. I don't think it's the going to be the sum total of what needs to happen in anti-fascist politics or an anti-fascist activism. Um, I'm interested in what education can offer, though, in terms of cultivating the individual, in terms of that formation aspect uh, in education. Uh, my work with Freire was thinking about um, some, some points in Freire's thought where he um, demotes uh, certain concepts from being uh, the sovereign concept or a hierarchical concept. And he brings things down into a more egalitarian, equal play between concepts uh, to, to remove some of that hierarchical um, formation of the individual. So part of what fascism thrives on is an individual that's willing to give up some of their selfhood for a sense of belonging in a mass, in a whole. And they give up some, and then they gain some by pushing others down. And Tyson spoke nicely about the, the traits in fascism of enjoying um, oppressing those who are below you. 
And what I think education can do and what I think where it can uh, interrupt was the word Tyson used, and I think that's very helpful, is as we're teaching, as we're interacting with students um, from the side of the educator, how do we interrupt their expectations that the educator is the authority, the one to defer to, um, the one who is hierarchically above them? And there's been lots written in education about that, about um I'm thinking about hooks and uh, bell hooks and engaged pedagogy where the teacher is um, engaging with the students rather than transmitting knowledge to students. And I think that can be taken up in a really robust way as a sense of anti-fascist education to cultivate students in a way that they're resistant to um, kind of defaulting uh, their agency towards uh, a populist leader or a strongman politics or things like that. So I think education can play in creating human subjects who are more resistant to some of these pol political trends that happen in that firestorm. I like that metaphor, in that firestorm of fascism. How do, you, how do we help students uh, not be sucked in? By that whirlwind. Thanks. Tyson, you say a little bit more about education and fascism? Yeah. So I guess, again, I'm coming at this sort of from a Frankfurt School critical theory perspective. And so I think it's helpful to go back to um, Adorno's um, model of an anti-fascist education and compare and contrast that with what I see as a, as a more Benjaminian uh, approach and how they might complement each other. So if we if we look at, at, at Adorno's work, there's really two prongs to cultivating um, uh, anti-fascist sentiments, especially in children. And the, the first prong is um, in, uh, always encouraging students to engage in critical self-reflection. Um, and for Adorno, he's a bit Freudian for me, but uh, th this meant cultivating a strong ego. Um, or, or engaging in strong ego formation. And so he saw really the, the psychological problem of fascism as um, needing a stronger ego to mediate between uh, the superego, which is an internalization of social norms, and the id or inst instinctual needs, right? And so in modernity, the problem that, that Adorno saw was that there was an overarching weakening of the ego creating this superego that demands absolute obedience to authority and the internalization of this idea of absolute obedience to authority and simultaneously a projection of instinctual impulses outward onto another who is then perceived as irrational, inferior, threatening to the social order and must be punished, right? So this was the problem. The, the ego wasn't there to um, reconcile the demands of the superego and the demands of the id. So, so educationally speaking, this means we need stronger ego development through critical self-reflection. Um, interestingly enough, and I have to point this out as well, um, Adorno highlighted the importance of working through guilt as part of an anti-fascist education. Uh, so he was particularly concerned with the um, – rise in post-World War Germany of resentment and a lack of ability to process and work through one's guilt for the war. And I think that this is really interesting to think about in the United States. Again, we're, we're dealing – like one of the arguments against critical race theory is often that, well, it produces feelings of guilt. Right in in young white children, so we can't talk about it. Right, the assumption there is that guilt is anti-educational and doing harm. Whereas Adorno is saying actually, what's doing harm is not being able to work through the unconscious guilt that we are inheriting and is being passed on through generations. So we have to find ways to engage in critical self-reflection to deal with the guilt rather than simply repress it or deny that that it exists. So that's the first prong for for um, Theodore Adorno. The second prong would be 
not only critical analysis of oneself, but also critical analysis of fascist propaganda. So this is like critical media literacy is very important for Adorno. Um, and I think, uh, so for instance, he studied American radio programs in the 1930s as part of this thing called the Radio Research Project. And in particular, he looked at speeches by a, a, an American proto-fascist Christian preacher named Martin Luther Thomas. And he outlined the tactics that Thomas used to recruit um, uh uh, sort of a th those already with authoritarian tendencies in, into a kind of proto-fascist political movement. And this idea of the tactic as a kind of educational lure, right, um, training or, or tapping into proto-fascist tendencies and giving them an outlet, I think is really important to think about. Also, it's important to think about the fact that in the United States, to this day, right-wing extremists populate our radio waves they still i mean this is they they control like over 70 percent of radio pro radio program popular radio programming so i think that this is also really an important point here um so anyways adorno wanted to point out these tactics so that way we could resist them so that way audiences could uh see them as tactics see them as manipulative tools and and sort of fight against them or uh, interrupt them in some way. So this is these were the sort of the two prongs of, of Adorno's approach to education, and I I'm I, I definitely in agreement with both of them. We need critical self reflection. We need critical media literacy of all kinds. Um, but I find that there's something lacking in Adorno's approach that uh, that I find in Benjamin. Uh, so really, Benjamin. He didn't write as much about fascism. He did write an early text in, in I think it was in 1930, and it was a, a, a book review called Theories of German Fascism, and this was very influential to people like Adorno. But uh, anyways, in that, even in that short essay, you can see that Benjamin is taking a slightly different path, a less Freudian-inspired in, path, a less psychological path. Um, path towards understanding fascism. And so instead of focusing on promoting, I guess, critical thinking and critical self-reflection as with Adorno, Benjamin is really, which is, you know, to increase the strength of the ego, Benjamin is really focused more on the embodied aspects of fascism. So fascism is an affect that takes over one's body and actually forms a fascist body itself. Um, so for Benjamin, in other words, one cannot necessarily think one's way out of one's fascist tendencies, right? Once they've taken hold, they take hold of an entire body. And um, uh, so the question, then the educational question becomes, how do we dislodge fascism, not only psychologically, but in the body itself, Um uh, and so this is less about developing, I guess, a strong ego defense and more about creating a different way of – a different form of body comportment, a different way of perceiving self and other um, that is uh, much more on a kind of pre-conscious um, affective level. Thanks, Tyson. So um, in, in various uh, responses – uh, you've been mentioning sort of the some some features of the uh, U.S. American context in terms of uh, providing, or let's say, seeding a sort of like low grade fascism fever that spikes, you know, periodically. And I'm hearing a lot of uh, perhaps tacit mentions to say like Kathleen Ballou's "Bring the War Home," Kristen Dumais' "Jesus and John Wayne," Nikki Hemmer's "Partisans," uh, those sorts of uh, books, which is really interesting. Also, this whatever Peter Gordon has a really excellent new book coming out on Adorno and aesthetics, and the fascist personality plays a, a little bit of a role in that. It's called "A Precarious Happiness: Adorno and the Sources of Normativity." I think you'll really like it. That's neither here nor there, Kara. Okay, so thank you. Um, so I want to kind of merge two questions. Um, one question we often ask is, you know, why why bring in philosophy to these questions? And I think you have both answered that in quite a few ways. Striking to me in your accounts is how you've consistently connected philosophy to things that are happening on the ground going back and forth between the two. So I think those dots have been well connected. Um, another question that we ask is, 
sort of where do we go from here with what you found? And I was, you know, thrilled to hear Tyson, you move us towards early childhood because I think we often um, don't talk about early childhood in philosophy of ed. And when we do, we don't often talk about these kinds of political questions in it. Um, So great. I'm going to ask a question though, which is maybe to me, these link, they may not link in your mind, but they link in mine. Um, I did a lit review recently of philosophy of ed journals and bell hooks. And Interestingly enough, although she seems like a quintessential example of philosophy and practice, there was basically nothing published on bell hooks. Um, Paulo Freire, surprisingly, not actually a huge amount of stuff, although you would think, again, he would be a philosopher of education. And I don't think of the... um, Frankfurt School as being a group that is also all that often mentioned at, in in philosophy of ed. So I'm going to ask you to tie together implications for your work and the canon that you both are coming from. So how does this canon help us think about philosophy of ed, but really why should that be a canon that's helping inform how we're thinking about teacher education, um, you know, moving beyond, you know, Dewey or other folks? That's a wonderful question. Um, I think it's a hard question. Thank you for that lit review um, summary. I think that is fascinating in and of itself. What I think, here's how I'll answer the question, and it's kind of in a maybe tangential way, but I think that philosophy of education, when it becomes too tied with the Western philosophical tradition or the Western canon, um, it actually is displaying a fascist tendency. And that, that can be uncomfortable to say. I think within fascism, there's something I've called uh, a frail logic of the one, where there's a totalizing sense within frat fascism that reasserts uh, homogeneity um, as the universal and just simply doesn't deal with difference. So I think it's interesting to find within philosophy of education that some of the thinkers of difference, whether it's Hooks or Freire or um, others, are kind of notably absent. Um, I'm I'm a little alarmed and not totally surprised. Um, so I don't know that I have much more to think to say about that, but I think it's a wonderful question I'll be thinking about more for sure, Tyson. That's a great answer. Yeah, I think this is, uh, I'm just going to piggyback on what Silas said. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's something deeply fascist about the Western canon. And I think that this is highlighted in, uh, Adorno and Horkheimer's book, The Dialectic of Enlightenment. The whole point of that is that there is an obscene, um, destructive side to enlightenment itself, the enlightenment project, which defines the West, which defines Western philosophy. You know, it's uh, enlightenment uh, uh, basically helped us dominate nature, but then that domination of nature turns inward and we begin to dominate society itself. And so philosophy is a symptom of of this uh, process of domination, but it also, in a sense, gives us tools uh, to think against this this domination. That's the dialectic of of thinking, right? This is why we need critical thought. Uh, philosophy is uh, can think against its its own um, uh, tendencies towards domination, um, and maybe maybe. You know, uh, uh, this is uh, in this day and age. We need to search outside of the West for for more tools, for more ways of thinking um, beyond this sort of uh, problematic of domination in the West. And so, you know, maybe maybe we can bring in non-Western thought into this as well uh, as resources. But I think that the the key point is that for Adorno, um, in particular, philosophy is a place of negation. That it always has a space for negating what is 
and for always calling into question power relations, forms of domination, uh, forms of the status quo, um, and so always making us see beyond what is given to us. And I think this is particularly important with fascism and the rise of fascism where we become overly reliant on authority figures to sort of dictate what is or is not a quote-unquote truth or fact. Excellent. Uh, and by excellent, I mean horrifying, but you know. Um, so the question that arises at this point in the conversation is what, as educators in general, whether people working at, in universities or in early childhood education centers, what should we do understanding things according to your lights? What should be done? What is to be done? Tyson, do you want to take this one first? <laughs> well, I think, you know, as Silas said, and I think the Frankfurt School is very clear about this, that, you know, uh, education cannot be the absolute solution to this problem. We need social change. But education can be part of a constellation of practices that um, together can form a kind of anti-fascist front. And I think that, you know, in my my book on, on um, Benjamin, I try to tease out um, some themes and some general approaches that educators might take, especially dealing with young children, for um, promoting a kind of anti-fascist collective body, or uh, if, if you will. And the key to my analysis is that this does not hinge on overtly teaching kids what fascism is. It doesn't. It doesn't necessitate like making political statements or propaganda, creating propaganda or, 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 or you know, counter-hegemonic propaganda or, or whatever it is. You don't have to create slogans. You don't have to go marching for things. Rather, what I find so intriguing is that Benjamin uh, highlights several features of child, what children do, and uh, we can sort of tease out anti-fascist potentialities in what children are already doing and highlight those in the classroom. And so, for instance, Benjamin... Um, you know, talks about children as being mimetic or engaging in mimesis, so acts of mimicry. This uh, allows children to imitate people, objects, actions. This is a key feature of what it means to be a child, I think, for Benjamin. Also, he highlights that children um, are sort of have an inherent sort of distractibility to them. Um, so uh, the, the the children are in interested in many things, they're interested in everything. Uh, they don't know what more, what is more or less interesting or important in a situation. And this opens them up to a, a wide field of perceptual possibilities and abilities to act, ask new and different kinds of um, questions. And uh, finally, uh, he also uh, talks about the bodies of children as uh, tending towards states of innervation or, or um, energized states, I guess you could say, uh, the excitation of the body through intensified or extended flows of, of, of energy. And this is where I think Benjamin really shifts us away from sort of a Freudian model towards uh, actually film theory and Eisenstein and ideas of, of um, the cinematic body as a kind of innervated body. So in other words, then um, – uh, Benjamin takes these tendencies in children and then finds educational forms or what I call educational forms to experiment with, uh, with these tendencies. Uh, so for instance, writing about children's theater or writing about, he, he actually wrote plays, uh, radio plays for children. And so looking at his actual radio plays for young children and sort of teasing out ways in which they embrace mimesis, distraction, innervation, and so on, and chart them into sort of anti-fascist channels. Um, also, he talked about children's language games and appreciating the philosophical importance of the way that children use language in interesting ways. So, um, uh, you know, uh, he was always in search of very and then also just children, the act of children coloring also um, in an interesting way has a kind of anti-fascist potentiality, I think, for Benjamin. So it's not really about inventing new things. It's rather about perceiving new potentials in things we're very familiar with. And I think that this is really one of the key takeaways from my book, or this is what I want people to take away from the book, is that you don't have to go out and radically invent brand new anti-fascist pedagogies. 
Um, rather, you have to appreciate sort of anti-fascist possibilities already at play within everyday, rather mundane educational activities. I love that you frame it that way, because I also do think that something philosophy of ed often does is try to make up or imagine things as opposed to really supporting and leaning into what educators do, which they, which they're actually very good at. Um, so I'm going to turn this back to you, Silas, for a moment, because you are working in the field in all kinds of ways. Maybe you can give us an example of something that you do that you see as anti-fascist work within the populations that you're working with. Um, and then we'll, we'll turn it to Derek. We'll ask a fi- or give a final comment. I haven't given up on awareness. So I think one thing that I think Tyson and I are hoping to come out of the special issue we're um, editing on anti-fascist education is, is, a, is a deeper awareness for educators about what fascist tendencies might arise in education or when these kind of traits that I spoke about at the beginning, when they crop up. So Tyson did a nice job of saying there's, there's wonderful anti-fascist things we're already doing. And I want to highlight the negative side where there's also fascist things we're doing within education and becoming more aware, more critical of our own educational practice. Um, one, one practice I do is when I'm educating in my setting is I will, um, I will start with a small mini lecture, but that's often two or three minutes and then I will draw in questions to try and read the room as best I can right away. It decenters my voice. It decenters me as a um, the figure of authority or the all-knowing wisdom teacher. And then I can make connections to those comments throughout the rest of the time um, I'm facilitating or teaching. So even if I was going to say uh, a point if I can connect it back to someone else in the room who had a close point, it can it can spread out for the listener um, the sites of authority in the room. That it's not all from me. I might be doing the most talking, but I'm um, placing in the individuals around the room um, the sites of where that wisdom is coming from, where where that's coming from. And I don't think that's limited by any age group. So whether it's early childhood education or working in a senior's home, we can find sites of authority um, in others around us um, to create uh, an educational experience of difference um, that doesn't need to be centrally located. I think that's one practice I try and do. Thank you so much. And that's such a beautiful articulation, I think, of also how Freire's philosophy lives in a classroom. So thank you for bringing it back to that as well. Um, Derek. Sure. So Tyson, I just wanted to, uh, you know, we, I see you every year at PES and I feel like we're always crossing paths, like outside an elevator or something, but like, um, I just wanted to take you back to something that happened like more than a decade ago at this point. I was like a like a first year grad student working in my windowless office at the University of Iowa on, you know, Wittgenstein and Heidegger and what they might have to say to education policy. My advisor didn't really understand why I'd be interested in this work. And my Wittgenstein scholarship just thought this was obvious. And so why would I be concerned about this? And I put it out into the world. And at some point, uh, relatively quickly, either you responded to me or you took up my thinking or you recommended me to uh, Bloomsbury as like a reviewer for your book manuscript or or all three of those. And uh, for somebody who uh, didn't really feel like he had a very secure understanding of where he existed in sort of academia and stuff, that meant an incredible amount to me. And I've never gotten a th- chance to really appreciate you for that or thank you for that. So uh, I just figured I would do it. Uh, I would do it here. Wow, that that really touched me. Thank you. I, I'm, uh, you know, that just made my day. I, I um, yeah, I really try to support people that are doing um, work that might fall, fall through the cracks and uh, that might be taking certain kinds of risks. And I remember, I remember those things very well, actually. And I, I, um, 
I was like, wow, this this guy's really pushing the envelope. I want to support this as best I can. And I think that that um, that's really one of the most rewarding things that I can do uh, is open up spaces for people to think. I mean, uh, we've been talking about philosophy here in terms of anti-fascism. And I think that encouraging um, scholars, especially young scholars, to think, um, to take up the task of thinking, uh, critically engage ideas is definitely part of an anti-fascist project. So um, uh, I like how how your comment actually dovetails with themes of 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 uh, our, our our talk today, right? And supporting one another in in the um, in the realm of critical thinking is is a form of resistance, I guess. I want to say to to anti-fascist uh, to fascist tendencies. Thank you for that. All of that. Thank you both for um, such a rich conversation and one that has so much uh cruelty and and um un, uh, a difficult topic and you've managed to handle that and and show the seriousness of this topic and also i think leave us with some optimism so i appreciate both your seriousness and also the spaces of hope that you've opened up in this conversation. Tyson. Yeah, I will. I will end with this, and it yes. is a bleak. It is a bleak topic, and it can it can lead to depression. But I uh, in a, in an article I wrote with a, a colleague of mine, Amy Cray, we tried to argue that fascism is really a, an attack on joy, and uh, in particular, it's an it's an attack on academic joy or the joy of thinking collectively together. And I think that uh, for me, events like this. They are joyful events. And so thank you for having us uh, today so we could think together collectively. And thank you too, Silas. This has been wonderful. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation. And that is our show. Many thanks to Silas and Tyson for taking the time to talk to us. As always, do subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and a review to help others discover us as well. The email address at which you can reach Derek and I together is thinkinginthemidst at gmail.com. We also have a form linked in the episode description if you'd like to suggest future topics and or guests, including yourself. A special shout out to listeners who have interacted with us through Facebook. We really love talking with you and hearing your perspective on this work. So for Derek Gottlieb and until next week when we put up the next episode, I'm Kara Furman, and we'll see you next time.